0: We're going to read from the New Testament now, and if you'd like to follow, I'm reading from Luke 18, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself even though I don't fear God or care what people think yet because this widow keeps bothering me I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said listen to what the unjust judge says and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? let's pray together father thank you for your living holy word by your spirit please interpret it to us apply it to our lives and may your word change us and inspire us this evening to be people more prayerful for your glory amen Then Jesus told his his disciples a parable to show that they should always pray and not give up. So tonight I want us to think about the discipline, the new habit for a new life, the title of our series of intercession, praying for others. Pray for Manchester, indeed we must. Pray for the Coptic Christians in Egypt and so much else. Thank you, Anna, for praying with us and for us as a Mancurian yourself this morning, praying so well. Prayer is a universal human instinct, It is a common language between the world faiths. It is a phenomenon that fascinates social anthropologists and embarrasses ardent atheists. To pray is to love. To pray is to be willing to be dependent. To pray is to decide not to grit our teeth and get on with it but to offer our burdens to a higher authority. Admittedly, for many, hashtag pray for Manchester is just a code phrase for I'm thinking about you, but for millions, try praying is a serious and attractive quest. Of course, Christian prayer is distinct in so many ways. It is theologically rich. It is spiritually exhilarating. It is morally demanding. We can only understand it in the context of our faith. True prayer, we believe as Christians, is the gracious provision of a holy God who lives in light unapproachable, to allow us, paradoxically, to approach him. It is the two-way communication, superbly illustrated in the story we read of Moses, that allows an infinite creator and finite creatures to communicate with each other, only made possible by a mediator, only made possible by a go-between, by the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the coming together of Ascension Day and this theme is a very happy one. Christian prayer is therefore deeply Trinitarian. It is praying to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And prayer is the unspeakable privilege of the Christian and it is all about grace. But if prayer is all about grace, it is also, for the followers of Jesus, a demanding discipline. And my conviction, without wanting to be over melodramatic, is that I think you could well argue that a or the primary weakness of the Christian church in the Western world is a neglect of this funny little parable that we're looking at for a few minutes tonight. This parable and the one that follows it, if you cast your eye down to the second part of Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, are distinguished by being the only two parables in the New Testament where Jesus begins, before telling the parable, what they are about. I tell you this so that you may always pray and not give up. Andrew Murray in his writings and his classic Waiting on God says this. All that the church needs for a manifestation of the mighty power of God. Is a return to our true place. Which is the place of absolute and unceasing dependence on God. It is to return to a waiting on God Now intriguingly this parable which is so urgent in its message is a parable that's meant to make us laugh it is a comic story about two cartoonish characters the first character is a certain judge who lives in a certain town almost certainly not a jewish judge where there would be three judges, and Jewish law was very particular, much more likely it is about the local magistrates appointed in Galilee and elsewhere, paid by Herod, or paid by the Roman overlords, magistrates, who were notoriously unscrupulous and the butt of many Palestinian jokes. We are told in verse 2, that he neither feared God nor cared what people thought. He was arrogant, he was opinionated, self-centered, thoroughly unpleasant, incapable of shame, corrupt, the very antithesis of anyone you would dare to want to trust. The only thing going for him was that he was self-aware because it says in verse 4, saying of himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, at least he knows that, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice. And that leads on to the second character, this enraged bag lady, this widow, the victim of gross injustice, who keeps turning up to pester the magistrate, Every day she's outside the magistrate's office when he arrives for work. Every few hours she's sending him another text. Every week he receives a letter from her. Every few days he's round at his own personal dwelling. And when it says in verse 5, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me, it can literally be translated so that she won't come and give me a black eye. And it does remind me of this wonderful scene of Alan Bennett's play, The Lady in the Van, when Miss Shepherd, played here by Maggie Smith, who lived for 15 years on Alan Bennett's drive, finally meets a social worker from Camden Town, who gets more than her match when she meets Miss Shepherd, and luckily escapes without a black eye. Kenneth Bailey, whose book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, talks about this story, emphasizes how these two characters are so true to the Middle East of the time. Only men were normally allowed to approach a magistrate. So highlighting how poor and destitute, bereft of any brother or relative as well as husband, this widow would have been. And yet she could get away from it. Kenneth Baylor tells of an incident when he lived in Beirut where some violent militia had their HQ just a few blocks from where he was teaching. And one day he recounts an old woman dressed in a traditional long black dress with a black head covering stood in front of the militia guards wagging her finger furiously and telling them what what she thought of them. And Kenneth Baylor comments... That if she had been a man, she would have been shot instantly. But because she was an old woman and a widow in black, they simply smiled, spoke politely to her, and told her to not get too upset. So here's this wonderful little story encouraging us not to give up on prayer. Notice what's unusual about this parable. Most parables are comparisons. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, a man who looks for treasure, a sower who went out to sow. Some parables are contrasts. God is so unlike the grumpy man at midnight when a friend asks for bread. But here, notice, this parable is both a contrast and a comparison. God is anything but an uncaring, unjust judge. We are not some nagging, annoying stranger before God. We are his children. We are his elect. And yet there is a comparison. We are to be like this widow. In our persistence, do not give up. Keep on praying. So let's take a few moments to look at this parable in a bit more detail. For it's a story designed not only to entertain us, but to encourage us. And I do think, let's have a reality check here, that as we come to this discipline of intercession we all can get very weary and indeed feel very guilty often we see little change for people that we've been praying for for years we know how poor intercessors many of us are how distracted and busy we can be and stories of the great prayer warriors of the church like martin luther who prayed 3 hours a day before work intimidators more than inspirers well let's listen to this wee bag lady let's listen to the story of this wee lady and see what we can learn so first what keeps us going well, it is a right view of God. God's character is the polar opposite of this uncaring magistrate. God is not only the faithful judge who we can always trust, but he is our Heavenly Father who cares and listens and sympathizes and forgives and delights when we knock on his door and always has the welcome sign up, who gives us his full attention and delivers whatever he promises. Some folk, some of you here are brilliant at hospitality and you know that whenever you knock on their door, you will be welcome. God is the ultimate in hospitality. He's the ultimate in hospitality. Ascension Day tells us that Jesus is now in heaven at the Father's right hand and he's standing, sometimes seen as sitting, to welcome us. He's standing to agree our case on his casebook. And to plead our cause. So look how the parable ends in verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see to it that they get justice and quickly. For those of us who are parents and a bit long in the tooth, we know how we feel when our children do not keep in touch with us. God is the generous father who longs to bless, who longs to communicate, and who grieves when we go for days and even weeks, if we're honest sometimes, without meaningful conversation with him. Janet and I recently met up with a couple we knew nearly 40 years ago when we were studying in London. And they had to chase us up. They eventually found where we were on uh, on, on the website. And they came to us. And a few weeks ago we spent the day with them. And I have to say I felt so sad. Because we enjoyed their warmth. And their friendship, and I thought we've forfeited this all these years. What divine love and kindness we forfeit. What keeps us going is a right view of God. And secondly, what keeps us going is a right view of ourselves. And will not God bring about justice, notice this, for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. We are not like some random widow knocking on a magistrate's door. Jesus reminds us who we are. We are God's chosen people. We are God's elect children. This is the only time in Luke's Gospel where this key biblical word is used of the chosen people of God. But it takes us back, does it not, to Israel. Called and elected to be God's people. And of course Israel's great failure was that they so easily and so often forgot that the primary reason they had been chosen was not for personal benefit, but so that they could model to the world what living under his kingship looks like. They were chosen to bear witness to the nations, and in particular, they were chosen to be a royal priesthood set apart to offer the priestly ministry of intercession For the world. And similarly, we have been chosen, we have been called, not so that we can just enjoy God's new covenant blessings, but that we can be priests for the world. The priesthood of all believers is hardly about us having our say in church meetings, it is primarily about each of us having equal access to the Father through the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and therefore each of us having the immense privilege and the high responsibility of bringing others to God in intercessory prayer. To have a right view of ourselves, the dignity of this discipline. And of course, compassion lies at the heart of all intercession. Intercession for others is arguably the most selfless and loving thing we can ever do for someone else. To be alone with God, unseen by others, unthanked by others, at times not feeling like we want to do it, To have the discipline of lifting friends and work colleagues, those in authorities, those in ministry, churches, nations, our enemies to God is love at its very best. Saint Augustine said, True whole prayer is nothing but love. To meet people and to feel somehow your heart scarred because of the pain of meeting them and then to open our heart to God who reads our hearts and feels the pain and sees those scars one of the great unsung heroes of the early church was Epaphras one of Paul's close colleagues, we looked at him with Fiona a few months ago and Paul in Colossians 4 takes time to honour him with these words Epaphras who is one of you And a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. Look at this phrase. Isn't this wonderful? He is always wrestling in prayer for you. It's an amazing statement. I wonder if anybody's ever said that to you. I'm always wrestling in prayer for you. That you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. A right view of ourselves. And thirdly, a right view of prayer. Intercessory prayer is not the wearying, discouraging, thankless task of nagging the divine. The contrast continues. It is the most fulfilling and noble task human beings can be called to. I love the way Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, which, as I said last time, very much has been a basis for this series, begins his chapter on prayer. Some of you will recall this. And he says this, Prayer catapults us onto the frontier of the spiritual life. It is original research in unexplored territory. And then he goes on, Meditation introduces us to the inner life, But it is prayer that brings us into the deepest and highest work of the human spirit. Do you remember how Abraham prayed for Lot? For the sake of 50, Lord, let's go for 45. Let's go for 40. Let's go for 30. Let's go for 20. Let's go for 10, God. Will you do it for 10? And it sounds, doesn't it, remarkably like high-energy bartering of an Eastern trader. Maybe so, but it is, is it not, the bold conversation of a child of God doing original research, pleading with his heavenly Father for what is God's will. Intercession is stimulating conversation at its highest. We all know what it is to endure a conversation at a party and we are thoroughly bored. Conversation with God is the most exhilarating conversation we could ever have. It is listening for his will. It is humbly exploring his will. It is submitting our lives to his will. And I love the words towards the end of Ephesians which I put in the wrong place where Paul says this, having talked about spiritual warfare and putting on the spiritual armour, he writes these words, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayer and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, all that repetition of all. There's no one way to pray, all sorts of ways. It has infinite colour and variety and tone, this conversation. It includes time alone, quiet before God for sure, but it is walking the dog and praying for a friend. It is swimming a length of the pool and praying for a nation. It is waiting at the bus stop and praying for our family. It is looking through a scrapbook, as I saw Cliff Barnard doing in hospital and praying for his missionary colleague. Richard Foster tells the moving story of an American primary school teacher in a special needs nursery, holding deeply disturbed children and silently praying for each of them. And Richard Foster comments on the irony of how some Christians in the States can get so worked up about the denial of public prayer in schools, and yet no one, he says can stop this wonderful Christian teacher privately doing what she does with these wee children. And so the parable ends with a challenge. The whole context of this parable, if we'd had time, looking back to chapter 17, was Jesus answering those who were asking about the end of time and what it would look like. And now at the end of this passage, he says, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith, which could be translated faithfulness on earth? What would he find if Jesus returned tonight as he looked at your life and my prayer life? Will he find us losing heart? Will he find us weary? Or will he find us persevering and learning and enjoying and wrestling? Will he find us like this now exemplary widow? And let me, if I may, before I invite folk to help me tonight, just make four very simple pastoral practical comments. For myself, I cannot hold in my head the whole range of things that I think I am meant to pray for. And so for many years I've had a prayer diary and I write one day each day for the whole month people I meet and things I should pray for. And at least they get prayed for once a month. I commend it to you. I commend system for those of you who are more IT than me, and that means everybody. (laughs) There are so many apps that will help on your phone. I meet people I know I should be praying for, and it's so easy to say I'll pray for you and to forget, but to jot them down is to remember to pray. Secondly, I do believe that it is healthy for every disciple of Jesus to have a regular time to pray with others, sisters and brothers in Christ. It can be a prayer triplet. It can be a work conference call like Steve Hewitt so brilliantly exemplifies. Tell him he got a mention tonight, Denise. It can be like one of our church prayer meetings. We now have a prayer meeting in a morning on a Saturday at a lunchtime and in an evening, to try and cope with the different sorts of needs we have. But to make that commitment seems to me a healthy thing. Thirdly, learning from the monastic tradition. How about trying to build a rhythm into every day? I've tried it and not sustained it. But based on the likes of Daniel who opened his window towards Jerusalem and prayed three times a day to attempt to find a rhythm of prayer in a day. Taking time perhaps before work. Taking a few minutes of quiet during your lunch break. Taking time in the evening. And finally I commend to you the idea of a prayer season. Sometime in the year maybe as part of a holiday, maybe a day walking the hills alone, maybe on a retreat, and retreats are not just for Christian workers, they're for all Christians, taking a retreat to spend significant time, a season of prayer. I've told a story before, but I end with it now, the story of one of Al's predecessors at Sterling Baptist Church, Jim Taylor, who was minister there in the 70s to 90s, who once felt so burdened in the church at Stirling with well over 300 members then, that all sorts of people were in spiritual ruts, that he says that he took time in a caravan just for three days and his Bible and his church congregational list. And he spent three days praying for those 300 people. And he says it was a turning point. He testifies to how he noticed as pastor changes in people that followed in the months that followed. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and please not give up.